The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. So I just constantly marvel at the providence of God as he lines out the things that I get to preach on. And uh, it's not an accident, I think, that today I am preaching to you from the book of Isaiah on ministry of the poor and needy, just having returned uh, from Haiti, the neediest country in the Western Hemisphere. This will be my last sermon in uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, until further notice. Uh, When I uh, preach to you next, it will be from the Gospel of Matthew, God willing. So um, what I wanted to do today is just uh, preach a topical sermon from uh, texts in the book of Isaiah on just visions of, of mercy ministry, or ministry of the poor and needy um, from the book of Isaiah. I want to preach it as a challenge to each one of us uh, to give generously, uh, to live a life of sacrificial love to others. And uh, I, don't, I can't think of a better book in the Bible to do that from than the book of Isaiah. And for me personally, I can't think of a better time than today, this morning, now. Having just come back from Haiti, the scenes of poverty in that country are overwhelming and devastating. Unforgettable. It's my third trip there, and uh, it just keeps deepening and expanding as I uh, just have visions in my mind. Uh, There's a portion of the capital city, Port-au-Prince, called the City Soleil. What a strange name, the City of the Sun. Uh, But it's a dark, poor place. Uh, There are all these temporary shelters built out of cardboard or wood or rusty corrugated uh, metal roofs. Uh, There are children barely clad that are uh, playing in puddles of muddy water or or scooping them up in plastic pitchers and bringing them back into the city to do with I have no idea what. Um, You see piles of garbage and people walking over them and picking out things that they find of some value there and bringing them back into the city. The whole country isn't that poor, um, but the the visions, the sights uh, are unforgettable, the the smells. The picture of poverty sitting on that community like a 900-pound gorilla, and there's nothing that they can do. And knowing the history, uh, the political history, the instability, the corruption, the wickedness, of the human government and of human sinfulness. And I don't put it all on the government because there's just sin all, the, all across the board that you see there that's brought that country to that level. And the demonic element, the voodoo, Satanism, the darkness is pervasive. And uh, as I come back today to preach here, First Baptist Durham, my heart is moved and stirred with hope, with a sense of the power of God that God would anoint me, uh, that he would sear my lips with a coal taken, a live coal from the altar, that he would forgive me of my sins of selfishness and materialism and greed and lovelessness and a lack of faith and fear and all kinds of other sins that have hindered me from being fully useful to God in mercy ministry. You remember how Isaiah had a vision of Christ seated on his throne, high and exalted, and he felt immediately his own sinfulness. And he said, woe is me, I'm ruined. And I feel that way. You know, as I look at the holiness of God, I look at the the love of Jesus Christ, the way he, he left that glorious throne, 
and came to minister to us. And I look inside my own heart, and that's what for me a mission trip to Haiti is as much a, a journey into my own heart of darkness, my own, my own limitations as a Christian. Christian. Um, just to, to know um, what I'm used to, what I'm accustomed to, and uh, I just ask the Lord to forgive me and to free me so that I can minister to others better the rest of my life. And I know He will. He came to save me from sin. And I know He's going to save this church from the same thing. I don't know what the future holds in our country. We may need to band together economically as never before. This is a good time for us to discover what it means to reach out to somebody who's needy and to help them. And to not be selfish. So I'm trusting in God for that. And there's one particular verse that moved me that you heard Fred read so uh, just powerfully. Isaiah 58.10. It says, If you spend yourselves in behalf of the needy and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. That's the verse that's going to be the focal point of our meditations together uh, today. And I believe that if we do this, God will bless this church as never before. We will be a light shining in a dark place. We will be a city built up on a hill for all the people around to see. No one lights a lamp and hides it under a bowl. He has lit a lamp in this church. And he intends to put it up high in this community and to the ends of the earth that we might shine for his glory and for the alleviation of suffering. And that we can be a blessing in this world as Christ was. You've already heard the verse that Eric read, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And that's what uh, moves me today. So we turn to the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'm not going to urge that you follow along. I'm going to be moving through the book um, and just picking out verses in which I, Isaiah reveals his heart for the poor and needy. And so uh, you can look these verses up later. But for me, this, is, this message, as I said, is like a burning coal from the altar. A coal of conviction and also of atonement that we might be transformed by the word of God. Isaiah called on Judah and Jerusalem to deal honestly with their sinfulness. To face it head on. And so he told the truth. They were saturated in religiosity. The, the machinery of religion, the, the wheels, the gears were just turning all the time in Isaiah's day. And this is what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 1.13, stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. So they did all of these religious things, but God was displeased because their hearts were far from God. He was displeased with their hypocrisy. And he was displeased with their lack of compassion for the poor and needy. Through Isaiah the prophet, God called on Israel to repent. Isaiah 1, 16 and 17, he said, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. These staccato commands come from God and they speak of a life lived energetically on behalf of the poor and needy for the glory of God. Seek justice, it says. That is, be certain that the weakest members of society are being fairly and justly treated. Oh, there was a lightning bolt 
of conviction for me uh, this past week. I didn't go to Haiti to be convicted of sin, you know. I went to Haiti to minister. I went to Haiti to give them something good, that I might be a blessing. But God intended perhaps that, but also that I might be convicted. And so we were in this uh, church in San Marie, and uh, the church was filled with people that were there for the... Um, the medical clinic, the consultation that the doctors were doing, and for the eyeglasses. And we divided the people up, uh, David Eugene, the Haitian pastor that I work with, just a blessing to work with him, into those that uh, needed eyeglasses and that those wa- that wanted the medical consultation. And we gave them tickets uh, with numbers in them. And everything was just engineered and perfect. It was just so orderly. And I loved it. And that's how it began. Clean and orderly and neat. It didn't stay that way. And pretty soon there was a lot of chaos, there was a lot of moving, and we had two men that we thought were trustworthy that were guarding the stairs up to the pulpit, and behind the pulpit was where the clinic was and the eyeglasses, and there was the right stairs and the left stairs, and you went up one for the eyeglasses, and you went up the other for the consultation. And we had these, these guards that were guarding, like the fox guarding the hen house, I think it was, were guarding the way up. And it wasn't long before corruption started coming in the system. And they were allowing their friends and attractive young ladies and other people to get in ahead of these elderly uh, women that were sitting and waiting patiently and could do nothing about it. And it started to anger me. And so I I saw him, this man, give a ticket to one of his friends and he just kind of put it in his pocket. And I I said, you gave him a ticket. Now, I think the only word he understood that I said was ticket. He knew that. And he said, yeah, ticket, ticket, yeah, tickets. I'm taking tickets. I said, no, 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 you gave a ticket. He, he was smiling and very, you know, yeah, you know, like, you know, born yesterday and know nothing. But I do know some things, and I studied French for six years, and it's of some benefit there in that Creole-speaking country. So I said, ce n'est pas juste. It's not just what you're doing. And his countenance changed. <laughs> he knew what I was saying. And we were not friendly after that. I wouldn't mind reaching out to him, but he knew that I had caught him. But I was the one caught. Is it just that I can walk into a Walmart and buy reading glasses in about 10 minutes with a credit card and they have to wait two or three hours to get them sitting there? Is that just? These are brothers and sisters in Christ, a lot of them. Is it just that we Americans, 5% of the world population, use 23% of the world's energy? Is that just? It's not just, I said. It's not just, said the Lord to me. And I'll be wrestling with it the rest of my life. I don't have an answer to the injustices of the world. I don't know what the answer is, but I know this. It is unchristian not to face the question. It's unchristian to hide from it. To remember one encounter you have with a beggar or whatever, and because of what they did with the money you gave, used it on drugs or alcohol, you are now free forever to th- from thinking about ministry of the poor and needy. That's unjust. It's not Christian. It's wrong. God means for you to hurt. He means for me to hurt. He means for us to feel the salt and the wound. He means for us to minister to the poor and needy. He means for us, based on Isaiah, to spend ourselves on behalf of the poor and needy. That's what he means. And it's relentless. He means for it to overwhelm us. He means for us to go back again and again and say, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what's wise. I don't know what's best. 
I don't know how to minister here in Durham, and I don't know how to minister to Haiti. I don't know what to do. But God, please show me. That's what he intends. But we hide from it. We come up with clever answers that will be worthless on the day of accounting. They will not help us. The tissue paper thin reasons we make that we don't have to obey the scripture on ministry of the poor and needy will not help us when we face Christ and give him an account. They won't help. And so seek justice means be certain that the weakest members of society are being fairly and justly treated. Encourage the oppressed, says Isaiah. Find people that are crushed as if by a yoke of slavery and encourage them by releasing them from that crushing burden. That oppresses them. Defend the cause of the fatherless means be certain that the weakest, most defenseless members of society, the orphans, have their needs met. Plead the case of the widow means stand in the courtrooms and the halls of power and act as an advocate for the, for the causes as if they were your own. That's what he's telling us to do. And so Isaiah was fighting against the sinfulness of the human heart. And he was fighting against also the corruption of wicked rulers. It, it was, it's everywhere in Haiti and it's all over the world. The wickedness of people who use their position of influence for their own selfish purposes. And Isaiah fought against it. Isaiah 123, he says, Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Consistently, Isaiah preached against these men. They were the ones corrupting society, such that widows and orphans and the otherwise weak and needy were being defrauded. And so there were multiple blasts from Isaiah's clear trumpet against these wicked rulers. Isaiah 3, 14 and 15, the Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean? By crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. This included unjust judges who use their, use their positions to rob the poor and needy, to plunder the houses of widows and steal their property, favor the rich. It included kings and princes who did the same, used their influence to do that. I'm thinking, of course, about King Ahab, who in the time of Elijah... Uh, set his heart on Naboth's vineyard and wanted it and, and uh, through the uh, suggestions of his wicked wife, Queen Jezebel, uh, orchestrated some trumped-up charge against him, had him killed, and then illegally confiscated his inheritance, which should have gone on to his family. But that, he's not the only one. This kind of thing happens again and again, and not just in Haiti it happens in America. It happens all over the world. People who use their positions of influence for themselves. So Isaiah raises his trumpet to his lips and he blasts out warnings like in Isaiah 10, 1 through 3. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do? On the day of reckoning, when disaster comes from afar, to whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Yet, Isaiah saw that even the financially poor and needy were themselves sinners in need of salvation. He had no romantic view of the poor and needy. They were every bit as sinful as the rich oppressors. If they could have, they would have been the rich oppressors. 
One of the greatest obstacles, I'm just telling you from my own heart, one of the greatest obstacles to sustained ministry to the poor and needy are the poor and needy themselves. How they live. What they do. You know, we expect to be thanked, to be recognized for the love that we show them. Okay? We expect that they might take the money and use it wisely and build up and all these kinds of things. We're not going to see that. You know why? Because they're as sinful as we are. That's why. Isaiah never denied this. He never denied that the poor and needy were sinners. He addressed it fully. Isaiah 9.17, it says, Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young man, nor will he pity the fatherless and the widows. For everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He knew the hearts of the poor. It's not blessed of the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I know that's what Luke says. But it has to do with poverty of spirit toward God where you become a spiritual beggar and know you need a savior. There are plenty of poor people that are going to go to hell. And there are some rich people that will go to heaven. That's not the issue. But we need to look past the sinfulness of the people we seek to, to reach and say, yes, they're sinful. That's why, that's why they need a physician. That's why they need Jesus. And yeah, it makes it complicated, very complicated to know how to minister to them wisely. Even the most wretched and oppressed people still need a Savior. Amen? That's why we want to minister to them, because they need Jesus. And so Isaiah knew, very plainly, the only answer to poverty is Christ the coming King. Amen? He's it. The coming kingdom of Jesus Christ is the only answer. And I mean the eschatological, the, the second coming of Christ kingdom. I'm not saying, you know, like the liberal theologian that, that saw the kingdom of Christ here in this world and had the soup kitchens and the social gospel and all that. I see it when Jesus comes back and separates the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the good fish from the bad fish, and deals with wickedness and sets up his eternal kingdom. That's when it will finally be solved. And not until. But Christ is a savior now. He's a savior today. From selfishness and sin and wickedness and all that. And so, uh, the vision of Christ, the coming King, Isaiah 11.4. With righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Christ is coming to establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness and justice and holiness. And he comes to judge the, the oppressors, the wicked and to be a refuge for the poor and needy against their oppressors. A refuge. A shelter. And so it says in Isaiah 25, 4 and 5. You have been a refuge for the poor. A refuge for the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall. And like the heat of the desert. Christ comes to save sinners. That's the good news of the gospel. And to be a refuge for the poor and needy. Who know they need a refuge. Later chapters in Isaiah speak of the vindication of the poor and needy and the humbling of arrogant, unbelieving rich. Isaiah 26, 5 and 6, it says, He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. What a vision. The wicked city of the rich being cast down by the hand of God and then the poor trampling it. 
Or Isaiah 29, 19, it says, Once more the humble will rejoice in the Lord, the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. That's the future, friends. That's a glorious future. That's what the Lord is going to do. Now, Christ began His ministry, His preaching ministry, in His hometown in Nazareth. What a, what a moment that was. And they'd heard, they'd heard some strange reports about Jesus. This boy they'd seen grown up in their streets. Father was Joseph and his mother was Mary. And he was always a bit different. Well, never more than that Sabbath that he got up. And the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was given to him. And he unrolled it and found the place, Isaiah 61, where these words are written. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And the scroll was rolled up and Jesus sat down and said, Today, in your hearing, this scripture is fulfilled. Oh, how powerful is that? Wouldn't you love to have been there? To feel the electricity in the place. Fulfilled. Fulfilled. Yes, fulfilled in the voice of the Messiah. The one who comes ministering by the power of the Spirit of God to lift up the poor and needy out of the ash heap of history and save them eternally. That's what he came to do. And he went to the weakest and the neediest and the, and the hungry and the sick and the dying and the dead. And he ministered to them. And they, the poor, were the ones who received him most readily, most eagerly. Now, you should not imagine that Jesus had no heart of compassion on the rich. There was the rich young ruler, and it says very plainly that Jesus loved him. His heart went out to him. He wanted to free him from his materialism and his selfishness and his idolatry. That's what he wanted. He wanted to free him. Or Zacchaeus, who made a living out of defrauding people, taking way too much tax money and, and becoming wealthy. And Zacchaeus was saved. He was transformed by the power of the word of God. And he said, he said, Lord, here and now I give some of my possessions to minister to the, to the poor and needy. And if, and if perchance, I have defrauded anyone, <laughs> I give back fourfold. I think he probably had. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't quite ready to admit it to everyone. I don't know. But Jesus celebrated. He said, today salvation has come to this house. And then there's, there's uh, Nicodemus who certainly was wealthy, and Joseph of Arimathea, who brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes to wrap up his dead body and give him a burial fit for, the, for a king. Finally, they have the courage to come out and be counted when Jesus is dead. They didn't have the courage when he was alive, but, but the, the Spirit of God, I think, moved on them and said, you have got a prophecy to fulfill. Isaiah 53 said he was with the rich in his death. And so, they provided the physical evidence for the resurrection in wrapping up Jesus' body with that sticky, expensive, aromatic resin. He's only going to be using it for three days, you know. And there it would be as physical testimony. And only the wealthy could afford that. So he has a heart of compassion for rich people. 
But just like with the poor, he calls on them to repent. Turn away from idolatry. Turn away from wickedness. And be used by God for the kingdom of God. That's what he's calling on them to do. And he said it's hard for them to, to listen. Hard for them. Very hard. In fact, without God, it's impossible. And so this is the call of the Lord from Isaiah. Spend yourself on behalf of the needy. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. And this will take the rest of our time in Isaiah. This one passage. Isaiah 58. And there, the Lord calls on Israel to repent of their selfishness and spend themselves on behalf of the needy. And this is the context. He's addressing Israel's faulty religiosity. I've already mentioned that. And he captures their attitude powerfully. Look at verses 1 through 5. Isaiah 58, 1 through 5. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And no one had the power to strip you bare like Isaiah. <laughs> Powerful words. The people seem to think that their fasting has put God in some kind of debtor's position. That God somehow owes them something now that they've deprived themselves of some food for a day. Why have they fasted, they say, and you've not noticed? Why have we humbled ourselves and, and you're not giving us what we ask for? As though a single day of fasting obligates God to answer from on high and do whatever they want. But in the midst of their fasting, they display their wickedness and their rebellion and their sin. Their eagerness to know God's ways was merely a facade. They claimed to know God, but by their lives they denied Him. They seemed eager to know my ways, said Isaiah, as if they were a nation, as if, as if they were a nation that does what is right. But they're not. They seem eager for God to draw near, but they really don't want me because I'm a consuming fire. And even the fasting itself was polluted by their sinfulness. Look at verse 3 and 4. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. I've done that. No, I haven't had the brawling, fighting thing, but I've fasted and gotten irritable as the day went on. Has that ever happened to you? I don't know if you want to admit it, but it's like uh, snarling like a junkyard dog. If somebody just throw me a bone, I'd gnaw on it, you know? And I'm not behaving very much like Jesus. It's hard to be with me on days like that. Oh, what a holy day to the Lord, <laughs> you know? You know? He said, put oil on your head and wash your face so that no one will know that you're fasting. My family has known when I'm fasting. It's been, it's been obvious later in the day, you know? 
beating each other up. That I've never done, I will say. Um, but, you know, this irritability. But, you know, then he zeroes in on this social issue. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and deprive your workers of their, their just wages. He zeroes in on this social issue of their treatment of the poor and needy. And so God rejects this fast entirely. Verse 4, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. And so instead, he gives them a true fast, ministry to the poor. Look at verses 6 through 10. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will will become like the noonday. This is, God is saying here, what truly moves him. When I see these things, says the Lord, it moves me. This is the fast I've chosen. This is what I'm looking at. And look what he talks about. To loose the chains of injustice. To untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free. To break every yoke. Now each of these refer to unjust laws and legal circumstances that are binding the poor so that they can't escape from oppressive circumstances. But then he says, to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter and to clothe the naked. These refer to basic physical ministries, food, clothing, and shelter. I was, I was hungry and you invited, I was a stranger, you invited me in, I was hungry and you, you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. These basic physical ministries. That's what the fast is that the Lord is seeking. And he says, and not to turn away from your own flesh. Now, God intended this ministry to go on not just to native Jews, but to all human beings. The NIV adds, I think wrongly, own flesh and blood. Blood tends to connect with your, your race, the Jews, you know. He doesn't say, it doesn't say that in the Hebrew. To not turn away from your own flesh means these are other human beings. You're just like them. There's no difference. They're human beings. We're all descended from, from one father. From one man, he made every nation of men. We're of the same kindred. To not turn away from your own flesh, he says. The whole human race has basic physical needs in common. And when you see someone hungry, naked, homeless, something should move inside you to want to alleviate their suffering. And so we come to this key phrase, verse 10. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry. Spend yourself is the NIV's translation. It's a beautiful translation. I love it. It implies a painful, sacrificial way of life. A way of life that pinches at your comfort zone. It makes you uncomfortable. It causes you to live differently than you were living before. It changes you. It affects you. It's not a life given out of the surplus and out of the extra. It's not if you spend some of your money. 
It's if you spend yourselves. There are different ways that preachers can belabor a point. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to do it by reading different translations of this verse. King James says, And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, draw out thy soul to the hungry. NAS gives us Isaiah 58.10, If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, The ESV has, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. The New King James has, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. All of these speak to the issue of self-sacrifice on behalf of the poor and needy. Now, I think spend yourself is the next step after a previous one, which is deny yourself. Right? And Jesus called on us as his disciples to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus. And I, I fit, spend yourself on behalf of the needy, right into the following Jesus part. Deny yourself. Say no to yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus and you will spend yourself on behalf of the poor and needy the rest of your life. Because that's what he does. To me, that's the Christian lifestyle. And I find myself wanting in it. I lack it. I don't, I'm not doing it the way I should. I mean, there are glimmers here and there, like sparks before the fire. But I want the fire. I want the bonfire, you know. I would like to be on fire for this issue. We need our hearts to go out to the poor and needy. We won't do it otherwise. Jesus, in Luke 7, saw a widow from Nain coming out, and she was in the process of burying her only son. And she was weeping with a, with a lamentation we can hardly imagine. In that society, that was a desperate situation. And it says in in Luke 7, 13, when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. We will not obey the Lord until this happens. Our heart goes out to people and knits with them in their suffering. And I think it starts with the the sight. You have to see them. Look what it says in verse 7. When you see the naked to clothe him and not turn away from your own flesh. You have to see them. And so what you can do, if you don't want to do this, is just never go where they are. And then you never have to see them. And if you don't see them, then you don't have to help them. You know, beggars, have you ever noticed they try to, try to catch your eye? You know, when they have your eye, you know, they've got a better chance. And what do you do if you don't want to help them? You don't look them in the face. See? So I think the text is saying, see them, look at them, look at their eyes, look at their faces, and then care for them. And what is the result of this true fast? What is the result of this ministry? Glory, glory for God, glory for us. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. It says in in Matthew 13, here it says, if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Do you have any idea what kind of economic times are coming to us? I don't. I don't know. We may need to be this for each other. We may need to be an incredible community of sacrificial love like we have never been before to help poor and needy even in our own congregation. 
All right? But God is making this promise. If we live like this, we will have everything we need. He will take care of us. We will know the righteousness of God. We will know the happiness of God's pure light shining in our souls. We will have a clarity and a purpose in our lives that we have never had before. We will know God. We will see His hand, His activity in sacrificial service. We will see Him. We will get to know Him better. The Lord will guide us always. He will meet our needs. He will strengthen our bodies. We will be fruitful like well-watered garden, whose, a spring whose waters never fail. I think it was Tuesday morning this past week. I was about to go out. I was standing at this pavilion where there was a group of Haitian people. And every morning, David, Eugene, and I went out and preached the gospel to them before they uh, you know, got ready to come into the clinic. And uh, I just had, I had nothing. I had nothing to give. I was weary. I was empty. And I just stood off to the side, and they hadn't seen us yet, and David and I were just... And I just prayed. I said, God, fill me up. I have nothing to give. I don't want to be here. I want to be home. Please help me say something to them about the gospel of Christ. And he did. The rest of the day, and the next day, and the next day, continued to fill me, continued to strengthen me, to give me the power to minister. It wasn't just me. Other brothers and sisters that were there, I saw him do that for them too. He's promised that if we will spend ourselves, he will replenish us and give us everything we need. Okay. So who are we? And where do we live? Now who we are? We are an urban church. We worship every week adjacent to the poorest part of Durham. Northeast Central Durham. Here the standard of living is the lowest in the Triangle region. Here the crime rate is the highest. Right near us, gang activity is pronounced. Here are single parent homes, drug deals, and prostitution. Now I can tell you that there is no poverty here in Durham that even remotely compares with the City Soleil. It's not even close. There's no poverty in America that compares with that. But it is poverty nonetheless. There is suffering here nonetheless. And we are called to minister to the poor and needy here, even though they are not at that level of those in Haiti. So we are an urban church. Secondly, we are a commuter church. Most of us, I would not say if not all of us, but most of us drive a distance to get here. We live in more comfortable and more affluent communities than the people surrounding this church building. We drive to get here. Hardly any of us live in this community. Hardly any of us would choose to live in this community. Hardly any of us have ever lived in anything like this community. We are affluent, well-educated, unfamiliar with the kinds of struggles that characterize daily life in northeast central Durham. The real issue is that it may be we don't necessarily want that to change. We may want to keep the sufferings of these neighbors of ours at arm's length. Thirdly, we are a blessed church. We have been lavishly blessed by God. He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who shed his blood on the cross, all of our sins are forgiven. If you come here today and your sins are not forgiven through faith in Christ, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to go anywhere. All you need to do is look to Jesus and He will forgive all of your sins. And you will be adopted into the family of God. And so we have been. We are children of the living God. We have a glorious future. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
And the earth we're going to inherit is better than this one. It's going to be greatly fixed up, okay? I mean, it's really going to be beautiful. New heavens and the new earth, the home of righteousness. We are completely set for eternity. All of our needs are met, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And we are materially blessed as well. That's what we are. An urban church, a community church, and a blessed church. What then shall we do? How shall we live? Well, I'm calling on us to pray and act. That we would pray. And I want you to start with this. I love what Michael Card said in that concert that you folks so beautifully arranged for me and for all you guys that came. It was such a blessing. But I remember one thing he said. Michael Card said, It makes no sense to try to hide something from an omniscient God. Amen? So if you say, boy, that was a disturbing sermon today. Okay, well, just go tell God. He already knows how you think about ministry of the poor and needy. Don't hide it from him. Just go and pray and say, God, I don't care like I should for the poor and needy. I just don't. I don't want to walk down that road. I don't want to go there. There are too many unanswered questions. There are too many hard things. You already said, Jesus, the poor will always have with us. So what can we do? But I know you want us to change. I know you want me to change. Please change me. Make me willing to travel with you on that road. Start there. No sense in hiding something from an omniscient God. I'm going to remember that one. Tell him the truth. And then secondly, let's start to see the needy. Let's see them. Let's go where they are. You had an invitation to go out in the streets of Durham and invite people to health fair. That is a wonderful way to begin. People will understand why you're there. They'll not think it's weird. They may or may not come to the health fair, but they'll know why you're there. You have an entree. It's an easy thing to do. Invite them to the health fair. The the invitation to the health fair could, I don't mean to be in any way disrespectful to the actual medical care that goes on in the health fair, cut out the middleman of them coming to the health fair by them coming to faith in Christ right there on the streets. You can witness to them, talk to them, but see how they live. Look past their shoulder into their living room to see where they live. Talk to them. See the needy. If I can urge you to start with your own family, I don't just mean your own children, I do mean that. You know, if you... It says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's much poverty in the world because especially fathers have neglected their ministry, the ministry to their children and to their wives. So we have to start there, okay? But then you could extend it out to extended family members, to parents, your parents, siblings that may be poor and needy. Care for them. I'm talking about concentric circles. And then let's talk about FBC, There are needy people here in this church already. It's already happening. It says in Galatians 6.10, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. Acts 4.34 and 35 says, There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and was distributed to anyone as he had need. So, and actually, the more that our urban ministry is fruitful, the more people from the community are going to become members of this church and they're going to need our help. So we need to minister. At the end of every Lord's uh, Supper, we have a deacon benevolence fund. Plan now to give more generously to that than you've ever given before. We give that money out to, to help the needy of this church first and the community second. And already there are more and more needs of church members. There just are. So plan ahead to be very generous the next time we have the Lord's Supper. And then extend out from there to the community. Let's, uh, let's reach out. 
here in northeast central Durham. I asked Matthew Hodges. Matthew, come up here, please. Uh, he's the director of urban ministry. I said, I'm, I'm working on a sermon on ministry of the poor and needy. Can you give me some points of application for the church? And he wrote out a list of them. I was reading over them this morning. I said, why would I read them? Let's have Matthew read them. And so we're going to end our sermon. And I told him he's under strict orders just to read them. Now, he could easily preach on each of these points, but he's not permitted to do so. Right, brother? Okay. All right. He can elaborate. And if you want to hear him elaborate, come and talk to him afterwards, and he will. Um, but he's going to tell you some specific ways to minister here in the community, and then he's going to close in prayer. These applications on ministering. The fourth Sunday of every month after church from 1230 to 1 o'clock, commit to pray for our outreach to the community. We meet here at church in room 246. Number two, during the greeting time, welcome men and women who do not normally attend FBC. All you need to say is my name and say your name. Welcome to FBC. What is your name? How did you hear about FBC? Share how long you have attended FBC and thank the individual for coming. Number three, the visitor who looks lost, not spiritually, on Sunday or is by themselves needs to be acknowledged. At the end of Bible for Life class, if you see an individual standing by themselves that does not normally attend Go to the person and introduce yourself. Ask the person if they are sitting with anyone in the service, and if they are not, welcome them to sit with you. Number four, if an individual asks you for any type of assistance, direct them to the ministerial staff or a deacon, and we will make that decision. Number five, meditate on the fact that we all were needy and poor spiritually, and have been made rich through faith in Christ. Number six, there's a need for men and women to walk the streets of Durham during the, during the day, to pray, pass out tracts, and engage men and women in conversations that prayerfully would lead to the gospel. Number seven, when referring to the community, let's say the people are the men and women in our community rather than they are them. This terminology will help FBC members to not think they are better than men and women in this community. Number eight, Bible for Life classes. You can commit to serve a meal and then engage in conversation with men and women at the Durham Rescue Mission Men are women's campus. Number nine. Pray about being a part of the 2009 summer mission trip right here to our community. Number ten. Remember, all communities have been affected by sin. The degree of the sin problem has manifested itself differently. The answer to the problem of sin in the people who live in your community is the same answer to the problem of sin in the 27701 community. FBC may not be able to meet every physical need of the poor and needy, but we can be the heartbeat to meeting the spiritual needs 
in this community. Talk to me about serving on the urban ministry team. Invite men and women from the community to come and worship here at First Baptist. Let the men and women you invite from the community to make the decision whether or not they are going to come. We cannot make the choice for anybody whether or not they want to come and worship here. Pray as we move forward ministering to the community. Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. We, do not, we need to look at the poor and needy in our community from a biblical worldview first and not from a we-do-not-connect worldview. If the latter view is what we use when we is what we use, then we will never minister to the community. Ask yourself, do I look at ministering to the poor and needy in our community from a biblical worldview? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.